Good evening, Newark family, and welcome back once again to our Wednesday night live broadcast. Today is February 10th, 2021, and it is my pleasure to be joining you all live as we do our regular Wednesday night broadcast. If you are a first-time guest, or perhaps you've seen a few of our broadcasts and you're just figuring out who we are, we welcome you, and we're so glad that you can join us. You can find all kinds of information about our church on our website at newarkupc.info. That's newarkupc.info. And on that website, you can submit a prayer request if you'd like to. You can find out information about our small groups. We have small groups. We've had small groups for years, but right now during this pandemic, our small groups have switched to an online format on Zoom and they meet every other week. We have 10 different small groups across the Newcastle County area the Northern Newcastle County area, and you are welcome to join us online if you'd like to meet up with some people. You can find information about those small groups on our website. You can submit a baptism request, which you can do on our website. You can do prayer requests. You can meet our staff. You can partner with us in giving. You can find out pretty much anything you need to know about our church and our regular broadcasts on our website at newarkupc.info. So we welcome you tonight, and we're so glad you could join us. Now, for those of you who regularly watch our broadcasts, you know that last week we started a series for two weeks called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And we're looking at life lessons from the kings and queens in the history of Judah and Israel. Last week, we focused on the kings. And so tonight, I get to continue in the second week as we talk about some of the queens that come from the history of Israel and Judah. And tonight, I get to do kind of a two for one because I am not just doing, we have the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? We'll forget good. This queen is definitely in the bad territory. I mean, like, like so ridiculously bad, it's crazy. In fact, so bad, I would put her in ugly territory. So I, tonight, am going to talk about a queen who was both bad and ugly. Wicked, mean, nasty, ugly, not in physical beauty sense, but in her spirit, her posture, her attitude. In fact, she is so notoriously evil that to this day, her name is associated with someone, especially a female, if they are just an absolute scoundrel. Now, you've probably guessed who it is by now, but if not, tonight we're going to spend a little bit of time and we're going to talk about Queen Jezebel. Jezebel from the history of Israel. This would be King Ahab's wife. That's right, Jezebel. When you hear that word today, you ever heard someone say, oh, they're such a Jezebel, right? I don't even know how you say that word without almost spitting out Jezebel. It's a negative, nasty connotation. So many of us are familiar, at least at a surface glance, with her story. But why was this queen so nastily portrayed in the history of Israel? Why was this queen so terrible, so absolutely evil, that she's gone down as probably the most infamous queen in all of the history of the land of Judah and Israel combined? Well, we're going to take a look at that tonight. We're going to dive in. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through the scriptures. She's pretty much in the background of what's going on with her husband, Ahab. And if you tuned in last week on Wednesday night, my wife did a lesson on Ahab. Now, Ahab was nasty. 
Ahab was an evil king. There's no question about that. But curiously enough, in his lifetime, there were a few bright spots where he actually turned back to the God of Israel, the gods of his, the God of his ancestor, Yahweh. And he did a few things right. He even found repentance at one point, and God delayed his death and delayed the collapse of his dynasty until after he died. But his wife, on the other hand, Jezebel, mm, different story. Jezebel is about as nasty as it possibly can get. And so let's take a little look at Jezebel. And I apologize. Some of this is going to be repeat information from last Wednesday night because we talked about King Ahab. And tonight I'm talking about his wife, Jezebel. So, you know, there's a lot of cross talk and there's a lot of overlapping of their two stories. So a little bit of this is going to be repeat. If you're one of our regular watchers, go ahead and stay with me. But here we go. We're going to jump in into 1 Kings chapter 16. And actually, out of 1 Kings chapter 16, we're going to back up before Ahab just to give you a little bit of context for what's going on. In 1 Kings chapter 16, we're clipping through some of the different kings of Israel, none of which were good. Then we get to this man named Zimri. Zimri murders the previous king. And so Zimri takes over basically by a coup, a military coup, and he becomes the king of Israel. And Zimri was hated because he had murdered the previous king. And his reign, you ready for this? If you didn't know this, his reign lasts an entire seven days. He's king of Israel for all of one week before he gets attacked because the military commander over Israel then in turn chases after Zimri and in essence, he commits suicide. He locks himself in a tower and burns it down around him. And that military commander then takes over the nation of Israel. And that military commander, for those of you not as familiar with Israel's history, his name is Omri, O-M-R-I. Omri now becomes the king of the land of Israel. And Omri I'm going to jump in at verse 23 because he connects to our story. And here's what it says about Omri. In 1 Kings chapter 16, starting at verse 23, Omri began to rule over Israel in the 31st year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned 12 years of all, six of them in Tizra. So the first half of his reign is in Tizra. And then Omri does something that's going to be significant for the rest of Israel's history in fact, it's going to be significant all the way into the New Testament at the time of Jesus. Verse 24, then Omri bought the hill that is now known as Samaria from its owner, Shimmer, for 150 pounds of silver. And he built a city on it, and he called the city Samaria in honor of Shimmer. So Omri spends the first six years of his 12-year reign in Tizra, which was the capital of Israel at that time, and he relocates the capital to Samaria, just as King David relocated the capital years and years before in the combined nation uh, of Judah and Israel to Jerusalem. When David first became king, Jerusalem was not part of their territory yet. And after taking that city, he relocates there and makes it the capital. Omri buys a hill, names it Samaria, builds a city there, and relocates the capital of their nation to Samaria. Omri 
did what was evil in the Lord's sight. No surprise, all of the kings of Israel did that. I meant verse 25, but notice the way it describes him. But Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than the kings before him. Now, the kings are already bad. Israel does not have a good king, if you will, in this series on the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have some good kings in the land of Judah. We do not have good kings in Israel. But it says in 1 Kings chapter 16 at verse 25 that Omri did more evil than any of the kings before him. He followed the example of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and all of the sins that he committed, and he led Israel to commit them. The people provoked the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, with their worthless idols. And the rest of the events of his reign, the extent of his power, and everything he did are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Israel. And when Omri died, he was buried in Samaria, and then his son Ahab becomes the next king. And so that's why I backed up to there. So understand, there's a man named Zimri who murders the king. He takes control, and he is king for a whole week. And then Omri, the military commander, musters all the troops together, and they go against Zimri. And rather than having to fight Omri, Zimri locks himself in a tower and burns it down around him. And so the people make Omri king. Halfway through his reign, he buys a hill. This is a big hill. Not, not like a little mound. He buys a big chunk of land. He builds a city on this hill, names it Samaria, installs himself as the king there. He lives another six years. He dies, and then his son Ahab becomes king after him. But Omri, it says in the scripture, was more evil than any of the kings before him. And now we get down to verse 29. Ahab, the son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. And if you're not familiar with it, you can read in 1 Kings. It's going to jump tracks back and forth because the nation is split. You have a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel is a lot larger with 10 tribes that followed there. And that's a different story for another time. The southern kingdom has two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And so 1 Kings and 2 Kings jumps back and forth telling the history of these different kings, some of them in Israel, some of them in Judah. Our focus tonight is on one of the most notorious kings in all of Israel's history, King Ahab. Ahab, the son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. And he reigned in Samaria 22 years. So his daddy founded this city, and he's king for 22 years. But, watch this, verse 30, But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. So daddy was bad, and he's going to up the ante and be worse. So King Omri is described as being more evil than any of the kings before him. And then his son Ahab becomes king, and it says Ahab is even more evil than any of the kings before him. So you can see this progression of evil. And really, progression is not even the right word. It's more like a regression. It's a slide. It's a downhill crash as the nation of Israel is spiraling out of control and doing worse and worse and worse. And we get to Ahab. And he is the most wicked king in their history. In fact, it says that his dad was the most wicked king. And then he becomes king and he's even more wicked than his father. Now, here's what's interesting. Verse 31, do you know what the scripture references as a waypoint, as a marker? So it's one thing to say, oh, that guy's bad. But then you say, oh, you know what he did? 
So you ready for the, you know what he did? Here's how King Ahab was more evil than any king before him, even more evil than his father, Omri. First Kings chapter 16, verse 31, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It says, and as though it were not enough to follow in the sinful example of Jeroboam, Jeroboam is the one, the first king of Israel who had set up idol worship. So he's going to be referred to a whole bunch in the kings. And it says they follow his example. What it means is they worship idols. Now we're going to describe how evil Ahab is. And it says, as if it wasn't bad enough that he encouraged idolatry. Oh, no, that's not what makes him a bad king. I mean, that's bad, but that's not what puts him at the top of the naughty list. No, you ready for this? Here's what he did. As though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of the king Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down to worship Baal. Oh my goodness, not only is he worshiping all these other false gods, as if that wasn't enough, he marries Jezebel. <laughs> and that is the introduction of this queen into the biblical story. So you know something is bad when we're actually talking about her husband and we're like, oh, he's bad. I mean, like he's really, really bad. Like he's so bad, he's the worst there has ever been. You know how bad he is? He married Jezebel. That's how bad he was. So... There is nothing even remotely redeeming about Jezebel when she enters into this story. And there's this almost little side note that says she was the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. And he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and then an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole or an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. So again, just in case you missed it, we end that paragraph by saying, look, this guy was so bad, he did more to make God angry than anybody before him. He's so bad, he married Jezebel. Now, what is this little side note about her being the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. Well, you're going to have to step outside of scripture, but a very, very quick search. And you can find information about this king in secular historical sources. King Ethbaal of Sidon was actually a king who started a new dynasty. And before he was king, he was a priest of Astoreth. You may know that name if you know the history of the nation of Judah and Israel. This is one of the Canaanite gods that were all around them that many people worship. He unites the kingdoms of Tyre and Sidon into one kingdom. Now, Tyre, T-Y-R-E, shows up over and over and over in scriptures as a powerful empire in the Phoenician era. And Tyre, at this point, is now ruled by King Ethbaal. And King Ethbaal was a priest of Ashtara who murdered the previous king and took the throne. And he reigned for some years. So unlike Zimri, who murdered the previous king and only lasted a week, he murdered the previous king and actually built a dynasty. And part of the ways he strengthened his dynasty was through political alliances with other nations. The most famous political alliance that this king of Tyre and Sidon made was by marrying off his daughter, Jezebel, to the king of the land of Israel. And so when Jezebel comes to court, the influence 
of the kingdom of Tyre and Sidon now is permanently entranced in Israel. Keep in mind, her daddy was a priest of this pagan god who murdered his way onto the throne. And now his daughter marries this new young king of Israel and has significant influence on Ahab all throughout his life. Astareth is the, is the feminine form of another name you may know from history, Ishtar. Ishtar, or as a feminine form, Astareth, was one of the major god or goddesses, if it's the female form, in both Canaanite and Phoenician idolatry. Specifically, this god is associated with fertility, sexuality, and war, or to just be real blunt, violence and sex. That's what this goddess is associated with. And Jezebel's father is a priest to this goddess who murders his way onto the throne. So I say that just to give you some background and some idea of this is where Jezebel's coming from. This is her worldview. She is totally, thoroughly, completely pagan. She is as pagan as pagan gets. And the king of Israel marries this woman and makes a political alliance with this other nation. And she comes into court, and instead of Ahab influencing her for good and introducing her to Yahweh, the god of his ancestors, instead, no, 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 Jezebel comes to court, and she introduces Ahab into Baal worship and Astra worship and all kinds of other evil things. And she introduces Asherah poles and all kinds of, and this is a public broadcast and sometimes we have children watching. And so I am not going to go into detail what that kind of worship involved. But if you do a quick internet search, you will find very quickly, it doesn't take much work, what it is that their worship involved. And it was lots of sexual immorality. This is a goddess of sex and war and violence. And so this is who Ahab is not only allowing into Israel, this is the kind of worship that he's encouraging and welcoming. And with his wife's support, he's building pagan shrines to this goddess. And the Lord is angry. The Lord is beyond angry that this is happening in Israel. For the rest of tonight, in the few references that we get to Jezebel, because she's really in the background of Ahab's story, she is so wicked and so evil, there is never a positive thing, never a positive thing said about her in the scriptures. Now, what does that tell you? She is so infamous and notorious that many people, if they've had any Sunday school or Bible exposure at all, can probably tell you more about Jezebel than they can about her husband. But interestingly enough, when you go back and look at the biblical narrative, she's in the background. She shows up for a few verses here and there. King Ahab's reign covers multiple chapters in Kings. Understand many of the Kings only have, you know, a paragraph. King Ahab gets chapter after chapter after chapter devoted him in the biblical narrative. But it's his wife who's a scene stealer. It's his wife who's this secondary minor background character. But she is so nasty and so evil that if they were alive today and this had been a movie, first off, it would be rated R. Secondly, she would not only win Best Supporting Actress, she would show up to the Oscars and actually steal the role for best actress, not best supporting actress, even though she only has a supporting role in the story. That's how incredibly 
larger than life and evil this woman is in the story of Israel's history. So let's jump down a little farther. And we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 17. And I just want to give a quick side note. This isn't technically part of my lesson because I'm supposed to focus tonight on Jezebel. But I just want to say it because it makes me laugh and smile when I think about it. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah basically goes into hiding at God's direction because he has declared famine on the land of Israel because of their idolatrous worship. And then God sends him away and he goes to a brook and there ravens feed him miraculously until the water dries up. And then God sends him away and he leaves the land of Israel and he goes to live with the widow at Zarephath. And that's another story for another night. It's an amazing story. You can go read it. It's in first Kings chapter 17, but here is what what I want to point out to you, because I think it's funny. After the brook dries up, keep in mind that Ahab and Jezebel are looking for Elijah. And if they can find him, they plan to kill him because they see this famine as Elijah's fault. Elijah is the prophet from God who's saying this famine is judgment on you for your wickedness and idolatry, but they're looking to kill Elijah. So he wanders off into the wilderness and God sustains him miraculously until the brook dries up. And when the water source is gone, God tells him to move. And look at this little side note, verse eight of first Kings chapter 17. Then the Lord said to Elijah, verse nine, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of, you ready for this? Near the city of Sidon, I have instructed a widow there to feed you. And then we go on with the story. And if you blink, you would have missed that little reference. But I find it absolutely hilarious that for the next three years, Ahab and Jezebel are looking for this rascal Elijah, and they're ready to kill him because of all the grief that he's brought onto their young married they're, they're, this new kingdom, you know, that Ahab is now in charge of. And I can imagine Ahab and Jezebel as a young married couple, and they're out there trying to establish their power. And she's really pulling a lot of strings behind the scenes. And she's introducing all kinds of pagan and idolatrous worship into the nation. And things are just going swimmingly for her and just a little bit longer. And she's going to be able to turn this nation around and make it look just like her daddy's empire. But then this annoying prophet shows up like a whirlwind and he's loud and blusterous and he has no problem talking back to them and he tells them everything is going to go wrong and it's their fault and he declares famine on them and then he leaves and boom, a drought hits. And so they're angry and they're looking for him and they plan to go get rid of this guy. The solution is they're going to kill Elijah. Meanwhile, God secretly is sustaining Elijah out in the wilderness. And then he tells him to move. And where does he send him? He sends him to a little tiny village in the shadow of Sidon. Remember where Sidon is? This is where King Ethbaal, Jezebel's father, reigns. And so for three years while the famine is going on, Elijah is hiding in Jezebel's backyard, and they don't even know it. I just want to, a little side note. I think it's funny. It just shows it. Look, it's all over the scriptures, little stuff like this. God has a sense of humor. God has a highly ironic sense of humor. And he says, oh, oh, you, you think you're going to take care of this. That's fine. I'm just going to hide him from you in your backyard where you grew up. All right. We'll move on. Let's jump over into 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to keep progressing through the story. And now we're going to go back to the story of Jezebel. And this is the famous Mount 
Carmel Meltdown, where Elijah shows up and he has this contest with all of these false prophets and fire falls from heaven. But look at the setup. Before we get to Mount Carmel, we've got this little side story about in the third year of the drought, they're out looking for Elijah. So Ahab is summoning his servant Obadiah to go look for this Elijah and figure out where can they get water. They're actually not even looking for Elijah. Excuse me. They're looking for water. And notice this little side note. It says in verse 3 and then verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 18, Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. Once, when Jezebel had tried to kill all of the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden 100 of them in two caves. Excuse me, just trying to mute. It's a terrible thing to sneeze on a live video broadcast. Sorry about that. The point I'm bringing out in this story is Jezebel is not, again, she's not really a character. She's in the background. There's this little blip of a mention of her in chapter 18. But the reference is to the fact that Obadiah is a devout follower of God. He's in charge of the palace. And he has hidden 400 prophets, 400 of God's messengers, his people, his Today, we'd use the term preachers. And he's hid them from Jezebel because she's going around executing the prophets. Remember, she's installing her own prophets. And as she installs her own prophets, if she finds someone who is a devout religious worker, if you will, in the service of Yahweh, she tries to have that person killed. This lady's nasty, bad, nasty, evil, evil, evil. And then we're going to jump down to verse 19. And I just want you to see how it's described. I'm, excuse me, I'm going to go to verse 18. Elijah is speaking to Ahab, and he says, I have made no trouble for Israel, because Ahab called Elijah the troublemaker. And Elijah's response is, I have not made trouble for Israel. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commandments of the Lord, and you've worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now, Summon all of Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 400 prophets of 450 prophets of Baal, ready? And the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So Baal is bad enough, but in addition to Baal, Jezebel has brought from her home country, remember her dad was a priest in the order of Asherah before he became king, Asherah excuse me, she has now 400 prophets of Asherah that are supported by her. That's the way the New Living Translation. Elijah says, bring those guys along too. The Hebrew there literally means those who eat at Jezebel's table. So not only has she installed all of these false prophets throughout the land, not only is she executing the prophets of Yahweh, she is financially supporting all of these prophets who are false prophets. This lady didn't just introduce the idea. She is actively trying to kill all of God's prophets, replace them with the prophets that are from her home area, and she's financially supporting all of those prophets. So she has a huge vested interest, and she is significantly actively working to make sure that the nation of Israel worships the God that her, quite frankly, her daddy was a priest for. Now, here's what's really interesting. 
pay attention. You have to do a slow read to catch this. If you go back and you read 1 Kings chapter 18 and then read on into 1 Kings 19, you'll notice something very curious when we get to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 18 is the Mount Carmel meltdown. We call down fire from heaven. Then Elijah kills a bunch of the prophets and Ahab returns home and Elijah prays for rain and monsoon water and wind and rain starts to pour down on the land. Verse, excuse me, first Kings chapter 19, look at verses one and two. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. So blink and you miss it. There were two important little notes there. Number one, notice in this powerful Mount Carmel meltdown experience in chapter 18, guess who is not present? Jezebel's not there. She's at home. It's King Ahab and the nation of Israel that show up to see this showdown between the God of their history, Yahweh, and the gods of Jezebel. And Jezebel doesn't even come to the match. When Ahab gets home, he tells his wife about what happened on Mount Carmel. And she is so upset by this that she says, may the gods, plural, again, this woman is thoroughly pagan. She doesn't even acknowledge Yahweh. May the gods, plural, strike me down and kill me if I don't kill Elijah by this time tomorrow. And so he flees and escapes. And the story goes on somewhere else. But again, I just find it interesting that Jezebel is not even there at Mount Carmel. She's at home and she gets word secondhand after the fact from her husband that, oh, by the way, we lost today and a whole bunch of your prophets were executed by that same man that you're still upset with. Now we're going to jump over because in 19 and 20, we're going to see Elijah as he picks up a new servant, Elisha. And now we're going to jump over into 1 Kings 21. And in 1 Kings 21, I'm moving along real fast. This is the story of Naboth. Now, my wife covered this last Wednesday night. If you didn't see that broadcast, you can go back and you can watch that broadcast. And I don't want to, for the sake of time, repeat everything that happened with Naboth. But I do want to point out that it's Jezebel's solution to have Naboth murdered. And if you take into account the extra biblical information I shared with you about who her father was and how he became king, we probably shouldn't find it too surprising that in essence, they're faced with a difficult situation. Maybe you could even say a political situation where Ahab wants more land than he has, and he likes his neighbor's property. And he's upset because he can't have it. And his wife's solution is, well, no problem. We'll just murder him and take his land. And this is a perfectly acceptable, reasonable solution for Jezebel, because after all, that's how her dad became the king of Tyre and Sidon. He murdered his predecessor and just took his stuff in his place. So Jezebel, again, shows up for the next time in the story, and her husband has a problem, and her solution is not to buy the land. Her solution is not to console her husband. Her solution is not to find some other nice piece of property. What's her solution? No, we'll just murder the man and steal his property. Boom, problem solved. See, no worries there. Again, there is nothing redeeming about Jezebel at all in the biblical story. It's actually quite terrible. And in 1 Kings chapter 21, we're going to jump down to 23. 
And Elijah is now speaking once again to Ahab. And Ahab describes Elijah as my enemy in verse 20. And so verse 21, Elijah is responding to him. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and I will consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in all of Israel. I'm going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Baasha, son of Abijah. For you have made me very angry and you have led Israel into sin. Are you ready for this? Verse 23, this is Elijah prophesying the words of God, judgment and damnation on Ahab. Verse 23 of 1 Kings chapter 21. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat her body at the plot of land in Jezreel. God is so angry at this woman and so disgusted with her. Not only does he pronounce judgment on their family dynasty and says it won't last and I'm going to destroy all of you. He says, and you go tell your wife. God says, dogs are going to eat her. And we'll come back to that a little later. God is very angry is what I'm pointing out with the story of Jezebel. This woman is as wicked, as wicked, as wicked could possibly be. And when God is finally done with her, he is so radically and utterly done with her that he says, there's going to be no burial. There's not going to be anything. When I'm done with her, wild dogs are going to eat her. And it's graphic. And we're actually going to get to that in just a few minutes if you hang with me. So there are not good things coming Jezebel's way. And then, poof. She disappears from the story again. Ahab's going to die. And we move on to the story. And we have to go over into 2 Kings chapter 3 before she shows up again. And at this point, Ahab has died. And now his son, Joram, is now the reigning king. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Ahab's son, Joram, began to rule over Israel in the 18th year of the king Jehoshaphat's reign in Judah. And he reigned in Samaria 12 years. And he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not to the same extent as his father and mother. He at least tore down the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had set up. But nevertheless, he continued in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that had committed and led the people of Israel to commit. <laughs> a notice, it's a secondhand, not direct name reference. But again, mama comes up, because now Joram is the king. And it says, he's bad. I mean, he's not as bad as his mama, but he's still pretty bad. Jezebel is still in the picture. She's still influencing what's going on. To use a more modern political term, at this point, we would call Jezebel the queen mother. Her husband has died. Now her son is the king. And so she doesn't have as much active influence, but you better believe behind the scenes, mama is still pulling strings and mama still has a lot of say. So now we're going to jump forward again, multiple more chapters, and we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 9 before Jezebel shows up again, because we're talking, we're bouncing back and forth between the nation of Judah and Israel and their kings and everything else. And then we get to 2 Kings chapter 9, and Jehu enters the picture. And Jehu is going to be the one to destroy Ahab's dynasty. And in destroying Ahab's dynasty, that means he's also going to kill Ahab's son, Joram, the current king, and he's going to get rid of Jezebel. And rather than summarizing it, I will try to read quick. I just want to read these last few verses. Jezebel has been a minor background character. She is bad as bad as bad gets, and she is nasty. 
She is ugly, ugly, ugly. We're doing a series on the good, the bad, and the ugly, and this is as bad and as ugly as it gets, is with Queen Jezebel. There is nothing redeeming about her named in scripture. Let's jump down to verse 21. Quick, get my chariot ready, King Joram commanded, because he sees Jehu and his men charging towards him. Then the King Joram of Israel and King Azahiah of Judah rode out in their chariots to meet Jehu. And they met him again at the plot of land that had belonged to Naboth of Jezreel. Oh, God likes, not only does he have a funny sense of humor, a very ironic sense of humor. He has, if you will allow me, an ironic sense of justice. So understand years and years and years before, this is the spot, this is the land where Joram's dad had stolen it from another man at Jezebel's suggestion by murdering that man and taking his property. And so now on this property that has been stolen through murder, Joram meets with Jehu. And they met him on the plot of land that had belonged to Naboth of Jezreel. And King Joram demanded, do you come in peace, Jehu? And Jehu replied, how can there be peace as long as the idolatry and witchcraft of, you ready for this, your mother Jezebel are all around us. Jehu associates the disarray of the nation specifically with Jezebel. The current king says, are you coming in peace? And his response is, how can we have peace when your mama and her witchcraft and her idolatry are all around us? Then King Joram turned the horses around and he fled, shouting to King Azahiah, treason, Azahiah. But Jehu drew his bow and he shot Joram between the shoulders. Now, remember, he's running away. Basically, he shot him in the back. The arrow pierced his heart and he sank down dead in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, throw him into the plot of land that belonged to Naboth of Jezreel. Do you remember when you and I were riding along behind his father Ahab? The Lord pronounced this message against him. I solemnly swear that I will repay him here on this plot of land, says the Lord, for the murder of Naboth and his sons that I saw yesterday. So throw him out on Naboth's property, just as the Lord has said. And when King Ahaz Azahiah of Judah saw what was happening, he fled along the road to Beth Hagen. Jehu rode after him, shouting, shoot him too. So they shot Azahiah in his chariot at the ascent of Gur near Iblium, and he was able to go on as far as Megiddo, but he died there. And his servants took him by chariot to Jerusalem, where they buried him with his ancestors in the city of David. Azahiah had become a king over Judah in the 11th year of the reign of Joram, son of Ahab. That's another lesson for another time, but talk about being in the wrong place in the wrong time with the wrong company. The king of Judah, and this isn't even his fight in his drama, has befriended the king of Israel, and by association, he gets himself executed when God brings down his judgment. Young people, pay attention. I don't have time to explore that. Verse 30, when Jezebel, the queen mother, heard that Jehu was coming into Jezreel, she painted her high lids and fixed her hair and sat at a window. So she's done herself up, up to be real pretty. And when Jehu entered the gate of the palace, she shouted at him, Have you come in peace, you murderer? You're just like Zimri, who murdered his master. And that's why I started tonight there. Remember, Zimri, a generation, excuse me, two generations before Jezebel, Zimri had murdered the king of Israel and had taken over. And then Ahab's father, Omri, was the military commander who chased after him, and he committed suicide by burning down a tower around himself. 
and Ahab's father became king. And so as a sneer and an insult, Jezebel, <laughs> this is the pot calling the kettle black, right? Jezebel calls him, Jehu, a murderer, just like Zimri. Jehu looked up and he saw her at the window and he shouted, who is on my side? And two or three of the eunuchs looked out at him. Throw her down, Jehu yelled. So they threw her out the window and her blood splattered against the wall and on the horses. And Jehu trampled her body under his horse's hooves. Then Jehu went into the palace and he sat down and ate and drank. So in case you do, what on earth, if you just missed that, Jehu looks up, she's multiple stories up and says, who's with me? And a few of the court officials look out the window and he says, throw her out. And they pick up the queen mother and throw her out the window to her death. And she hits the ground and splats so hard that her blood splatters everywhere, even on the horses. And Jehu has so little respect for this woman that he just lets his horse trample right over her body, walks into the palace, sits down, and has lunch. Oh my word, how violent is that? Then Jehu went into the palace and ate and drank. And afterward he said, you know, someone go and bury this cursed woman for she is the daughter of a king. He's starting to have second thoughts and realizing, you know, her dad's the king of the neighboring nation. We should probably at least do the semi-decent thing and give her a burial. But, verse 35 of 1 Kings chapter 9, and I'm wrapping up, so Joyce, go ahead and join me. But when they went out to bury her, they found only her skull her feet, and her hands. And when they returned and told Jehu, he said, well, this fulfills the message from the Lord when he spoke through his servant Elijah from Tishbe. At the plot of land in Jezreel, dogs will eat Jezebel's body. Her remains will be scattered like dung on the plot of land at Jezreel so that no one will be able to recognize her. And thus ends the wicked bad tale of Jezebel. At the end, her death is violent it's obscene, just like her life. And then after lunch, Jehu has a small attack of a conscience. And he says, you know, I should probably at least bury her. But when they go out to find her, she's gone. The wild dogs have already consumed her and there is nothing left to bury. And this is the final, final insult on her reign because she doesn't even get a burial. And she's the queen mother. You would think that the queen of a nation whose father was the king of another nation, would get a state funeral, would get you know a bonfire built for her at her memorial, would have statues of her put up or something. No, no, she's thrown out the window. She's trampled under a horse. They go have lunch. And by the time they get back from lunch, there's not even a body to bury. That's how thoroughly disgusted and done God is with this whole scenario. All right. you again there's another sneak sorry about that so there ends the bad 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 evil ugly tale of jezebel i got the rough one for this bible study she's a crazy character to talk about but what's interesting i don't know if you noticed this but i went from first kings chapter 16 all the way into second kings chapter 9 and in half a dozen places jezebel is mentioned almost in passing but she is so nasty and evil she steals the scene every time she shows up. All right, Joyce, 
I don't know if we will. This is a bit of a crazy, and I know we went a little long on the narrative part, but do we have any comments, any questions, anything tonight that go along with this lesson? We do. We have a few. Um, so can you think of anyone who was more wicked than Jezebel? No. That's a great question. And notice how fast my answer is. I started thinking about the kings and queens of Israel. Now, there are other evil people. But quite honestly, I don't know if I am aware of anybody who was as evil as Jezebel. Some of the other people at least have some nice things said about her. Understand when she enters the story, there is not one shred of decency in the story. There is not one single redeeming quality named about her. Not one nice thing is said about her in all of scripture. And God absolutely hates her. I mean, that's strong language, but that's how the scriptures portray it. And it's not just that she's evil. It's that she systematically, with intentionality, led Israel into more and more idolatrous worship. She's killing God's prophets. She's installing her own prophets, and then she is financially supporting those prophets. And if anybody gets in her way, she has them killed. This lady's nasty. I mean, she's just, I thought about it. And it's really stark contrast because think through scripture. I mean, how many other people are named like that in scripture? I mean, it's pretty strong. Think of, okay, let's think of the ultimate betrayal. Judas Iscariot, right? We think of very, very bad Judas Iscariot, but yet Judas was a disciple of Jesus. I mean, like we can find some redeeming things about Judas. Jezebel? Nothing. I mean, I cannot find, hey, if you're out there and you're listening to this broadcast and you can come up with something, let me know. My email address is desi, D-E-S-I dot Lugo at newarkupc.org. If you can come up with something redeeming about Jezebel, I'd like to read it because I couldn't think of anything. And I was thinking about that before this broadcast and just thinking through it. I mean, like, how bad do you have to be when there is not one redeeming thing named about you in the entire biblical narrative? She is so, I can't emphasize this enough. I love narrative, a narrative approach to scripture where you're looking at the story and what it's telling. Think about a playwright. If this were, it's not fiction, but if this were a play, she's a minor character. The lady's got like 12 lines in the whole play, but she is so nasty and so evil in every scene that she shows up, she steals it. Again, if this were a movie today, it'd be rated R and she would have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress and then showed up at the Oscars and just stolen Best Actress. That's the kind of lady she was. I was going to ask you if you thought that she might ever thought to repent, but I guess she wouldn't even acknowledge God. So what? She didn't acknowledge wow. God. Notice when, notice after Mount Carmel, which she doesn't show up at, it's a showdown between her gods and the God that Ahab is supposed to serve. And she doesn't even come to the contest. And when he comes home and tells her about it, she's furious. And she sends a message to Elijah that says, may the gods, plural, in reference to her gods, may the gods strike me down if I don't kill you by tomorrow. Even at that point, she won't acknowledge the God who just pulled down fire from heaven and destroyed her priests. There's no repentance in her story. There's not even an acknowledgement of Yahweh in her story. Okay, so what about this one? Do you think she was the worst or do you think that she has been someone who has had a match though, like Hitler, for instance? 
just just in history. Okay. Are there more evil people in history? Probably. I mean, I, I don't know all of world history, but so I don't want to make too harsh or too extreme of a statement. Can I say she was the most evil queen who's ever lived in the entire history of mankind? I don't know if I could claim that. But at this point, I'm pretty confident that I can claim she is the nastiest character in the Old Testament. I mean, she is just like, she's the most evil queen in the history of Israel, hands down. It's pretty but, bad. Yeah. Um, so given her upbringing, mm -hmm. what are some of the lessons we can learn about who she became and the effects of generational curses and blessings? Oh, because oh, there's several things I could unpack in that. But let's let's try to attempt this. So one thing, let me first say, whoever submitted that question, good job noticing her background and thinking about that because who you are and where you come from is important. Your upbringing has a huge influence on your life. And she is pagan and she is not from the land of Israel. And she has grown up serving Canaanite gods. And her father is a priest who is a leader in the worship of this false god who murders his way onto the throne. So daddy's nasty. And so you could look at that and say, oh, poor Jezebel. I mean, she never had a chance, right? Because everything was just, I mean, she was raised in wickedness. It's no wonder that she's so evil. And to some extent, I would even agree with that. But let me contrast her with another lady who comes from those evil Canaanite lands and who did not grow up serving the gods of Israel. This is a woman who comes from Moab, and this is an evil, vile, nasty place. This is a place where their gods and part of the worship in that land involves child sacrifice, which in my mind, that's as nasty and evil as it could possibly get in an idolatrist, is when you kill children and burn them in the service of your God. And there's a woman in the biblical story hundreds of years before Jezebel who comes out of that really dark, evil, nasty land. Anybody know who I'm talking about? You with me, Joyce? Was it, was it Ruth? It's Ruth. Yeah. Exactly right. So Ruth comes out of an environment that is just as wicked as Jezebel. And yet Ruth is a righteous woman. And she's considering a paragon example of a virtuous woman. Ruth enters the story, and when she is introduced to the God of Israel, her world flips upside down, and she's honorable, and she's just, and she's submitted to her mother-in-law. I don't have time to get into it tonight, but if you know the biblical story, contrast Ruth and Jezebel, and look at the radical difference in how they respond when they come in contact with Yahweh. And Ruth, and speaking of blessings, Ruth marries Boaz, right? And her great-great-grandson is King David. And jump down many, many generations later and you get to Jesus. So not only does this Moabite woman who comes from an absolutely wicked, evil, idolatrous place come to the land of Israel and encounter Yahweh, her character is so good and she is so submitted to doing what's right. She tells Naomi, your, your land will be my land. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She is so submitted to this God that she just met. 
that he looks at her in history and says, you know what? I'm going to incorporate you into the greatest story I'm building. And one day, hundreds and hundreds of years and many, many generations after you, I'm going to step into this story myself. And I'm going to take on humanity. And the creator of the universe becomes a human and he steps into our story. And whose lineage does he choose? Ruth. She's an amazing, amazing character. Now we get to Jezebel. So I go back to my, oh, poor woman. I mean, look at this. She grew up in an evil place and it's an idolatry. It's no wonder she's so evil. It's like, well, then what do you do for someone like Ruth? So while your upbringing has a huge impact on you, it does not have to determine your fate. And Jezebel, I am confident that Jezebel could have been different, but she refuses to acknowledge the God of Israel. She actively, purposely, violently works against God her entire time that she's queen and then queen mother of the land of Israel. So look at the influence that she has on her husband and then her son. And they both end up murdered. Well, to be fair, I don't know that I'd say Ahab was murdered. He died in battle and that happened. Her son is literally shot in the back by Jehu and dies in his chariot as he's running away. So let me, this is another topic for another time. Someone used the word generational curses. I challenge you to find that in scripture. That's not really what scripture is talking about. Because you can also see how people have the chance to turn away. And are there bad choices that people make that impact the next generation, that then impact the next generation? Alcoholism or abuse, those are two easy examples to look at. Are they evil? Absolutely. Are they damaging? Most certainly. Do they destroy lives without a question? Is it a curse in the evil supernatural sense of the word, you know, that somehow demonic forces have oppressed you and there's nothing you can do about it? I don't believe that. So it's another lesson for another time, but I, I don't believe in generational curses, at least not the way that that word is used in our general cultural sense of the term. But we also see generational blessings, too. And scripture makes it clear in multiple places where God says, I will bless the righteous and I will bless the righteous and their children and their children's children for those who serve me. And so isn't it amazing how our choices not only impact us? There's another whole hour we could spend talking about that on a different night. And when you choose to live for God, God says, I will bless you, your children and your children's children because of your righteous lifestyle. When you choose to fight against God, as Jezebel has done, you have the potential to destroy the lives of your children. Notice I said potential, because they can choose for themselves to live differently. And if you want a biblical example, I go back to Ruth. Ruth walked away from idolatry and embraced the God of Israel and got incorporated into the line of Jesus her great-grandson or great-great-grandson is King David. I mean, that woman has an amazing story. Jezebel 
actively worked against the will of God, not just resisted it, not just ignored it. No, I mean, campaigned against it, went around murdering God's prophets and then installing her own. So your choices matter, not only for you, for your children. The one positive thing I can say on the evil side is if you're someone who comes from a background of violence, abuse, alcoholism, substance abuse problems, all kinds of other things, right? The choices of your parents most certainly impact you, but they don't determine your fate. God is merciful towards us. And every one of us in every single generation have to make our own decisions and start over. And so we get to decide what happens with our life. So no matter who your mama or your daddy was, you have the choice to do what's right and to live for God. And here's the amazing thing. God says, if you will live for me and live a righteous life that is pleasing to me, I will bless your children and your grandchildren. So on the evil side, it has the potential to damage you. But on the positive side, God says, you live for me. I'll bless multiple generations. Amen. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to couple two questions together. So do you think Ahab might have been less wicked if he had not married Jezebel? And how can we be more careful um, and have discernment with who we align ourselves with um, to not have Jezebel type friends and associates? Okay. So, do I think that Ahab would have been less evil had he not married Jezebel? Absolutely 100% for certain. Yes. That's the way the scripture plays it out. In the narrative, it says that he did more evil than anyone before him. He married Jezebel. That's the qualifier. That's what made him the most evil king in Israel's history was that he married Jezebel. Is that not crazy? So by default, if Ahab had married virtually anyone else, he would have been less evil just for not having married Jezebel. I mean, it's unreal how badly she is painted in the scriptures. I cannot think of any other biblical character who is just so wickedly portrayed as Jezebel. So that tells you something about association, doesn't it? And who we choose to hang out with and live with. Now, I'm reading a little between the lines, but it is highly likely. Remember that the Sidonian Empire, if you know history, is, is extremely wealthy and very powerful. And so think of a young king establishing his kingdom. It's highly likely that he married Jezebel as a political alliance because her daddy is the king of a very powerful, very wealthy neighboring empire. So we have to be careful who our friends are. I don't know what to say when it comes to Jezebel, though, because, again, there's not a redeeming quality. So it's like, how can we be more discerning? I don't know what there is to discern about Jezebel. From the moment she enters the scene, she's a murdering, lying, backstabbing, nasty, evil, idolatrous woman. Like, if you can't tell that someone you associate with is on the Jezebel level, I, I don't know how to help you, right? Because... <laughs> She's about as bad as they get. And if you can't recognize that, like, oh, really? I shouldn't be friends with the person who's doing these things? Well, okay, <laughs> you need help. Like, we don't befriend people like that. We, we avoid people like that. We stay far from them. But notice, Ahab gets himself in trouble making political alliances. Choose your friends based on their character, not what they can do for you. 
So, so there's, I guess, some little lesson we can take from that. One of the things that we see repeatedly in the life of Jezebel, so I really, really doubt anybody listening to us is going to have friends as nasty as Jezebel. But let's let's back down the scale of evil. There's something, I don't know, moderate. And you're trying to decide, you know, I don't know if this is a positive influence on my life. You pointed this out, Joyce, but I'm going to emphasize it even more. One of the things that we do see that shows up in the life of Jezebel, this little background character who's a steen sealer, is that uh, she's never repentant. She's never apologetic. She doesn't acknowledge her own wrongdoing. And that's a huge red flag. If you have someone in your life who is never wrong, if you have someone in your life who it's never their fault, if you have someone in your life who cannot apologize, if you have someone in your life who will not accept responsibility for their own actions, run away. Maybe that's too strong a language. I mean, you don't physically run away necessarily, but that's a huge, massive, massive red flag. If you've got someone in your life who cannot apologize, who cannot back down, who is never wrong, who is never responsible when things go wrong, won't take ownership, those are major, major character flaws and major things that you should be watching for. And so even stripping away all of the idolatry and murder from Jezebel's story, just those alone are enough to make you pause and go, whoa, something's really off here. This is not good. I know we're at the top of the hour. Was there anything else or does that kind of wrap it up? Um, I believe that wraps it up. Yes. Okay. If, right. if there were any more, I think you answered them just in the context of what you were speaking about. Sure. Sure. Well, thank you all once again for joining our evening broadcast. Tonight was a little different. I know we went long on the biblical narrative because I expected there wouldn't be a whole lot of questions and comments because her story is crazy, but fairly straightforward. And in case you missed it, the whole point tonight was don't be this lady. Don't be like this. And so thank you for joining us on our series on the good, the bad, and the ugly. Tonight, I got bad and ugly. If you didn't notice, Tonight was like really, really, really bad and very, very, very ugly. In fact, the worst of the worst. That's who I covered tonight. The rest of the series won't all be like that. But stay tuned. If you missed it, you can go back in our archives and you can look at it. You can click on the media link on our website at newarkupc.info and you can find all of our most recent broadcasts. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us. Have a great evening.